together this morning. Let me read a f- the first couple of verses out of the 43rd chapter of Isaiah. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And, though ri- and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Father, we're so thankful that you declared to your people, beginning with Abraham, the salvation that would come ultimately through the Messiah that we know as Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have placed our faith and who has become our Savior. We know that Jesus Christ as Son of God is Yahweh of the Old Testament and we know that as He proclaimed Himself Savior of Israel, so He is our Savior today. And we're so grateful for what You have done for us. And Lord, we just ask You to guide us this morning in our study, to fill us with Your Spirit, to give us understanding and insight, and pray that Your name will be glorified in our midst. And throughout this premises today, in the service, in the other Sunday school classes, and Father, We're grateful that wherever your word is proclaimed this day, your spirit is there, moving and using your word. Scripture tells us that your word will not return void. So we add our prayers to the prayers of others, that this day large numbers of people will be brought into your kingdom. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you last time, we began what is going to be just a brief series in between our study of 2 Samuel and our study of 1 Kings. And what I want to do in this series, which I've called Israel Through the Millennia, is to go back to the original call of God on Abraham, which, into which God proclaimed the land, and look brace briefly at that land through the past 4,000 years. And we're going to do it by looking, of course, at Scripture as much as Scripture applies And then when we move beyond the New Testament period, we'll quickly move through some of the events. Now, I've given to you today a handout. Let me just uh, review this briefly for you for a moment. I I, I give this to you as sort of a guide, just so that you know as we're dealing with these events, what is the environment politically at that particular time? And I, I, I put CA, which means circa, about. In many of these dates, there's no way of knowing the exact date. As you get further on down, of course, the dates are exact, but I still used it anyway, just to be consistent all the way through there. And last time, as we looked at the call of God upon Abraham, sort of looking through the first part of the book of Genesis in, in, a, in a brief overview, I mentioned the Sumerian civilization. And the civilization of Sumer was the civilization that existed in the southern part of what is modern Iraq today. And it was based on a whole series of city-states that were established. Some of the names you know. One of them, of course, is an important biblical site called Ur. And Ur was located uh, down here in the very southern part of Sumeria, which is the name given to the whole area because the people were the Sumerians. We know very little about them. We know something about their culture, but in terms of their origin, uh, the origin of their language, these are things that are still historically uh, more, more guesswork. The society here was overwhelmed by a civilization that grew up here at a place called Babylon. 
And the Amorites, that's a Sumerian word for Westerners. They are Semitic peoples. The Amorites were Semites. The term Semitic is a linguistic term. It has to do with people who speak a language that is descended, well, you know, in theory, from Shem. You know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the Shemites, the Semites. And of course, that includes the Hebrews, but a lot of other people as well. The Canaanites, the, uh, the Phoenicians, uh, the, the Arameans, uh, the Assyrians. Uh, all of these people, the Arabs of today, are Semitic. Their language belongs to that group. Civilization grew up there, which conquered, well, actually ruled the area that had been Sumer for a while. And somewhere just before that occurred is when Abraham left. I pointed out last time Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees with Terah's father. You could say Terah left with Abraham as his son and went over here to Haran, way up here in the north in what is today Syria, the, the country of Syria today. That occurred probably during the last phase of the Sumerian era, just before the Sumerians collapsed. As you see there, the Amorite period, one of the, the only really great ruler we know from the Amorite period is Hammurabi. And if you've ever studied uh, World Civ or Western Civ or gone back and look, looked at ancient civilization, you've heard that name. Uh, he's about the only person we know much about from that time period in this part of the world. We know he ruled for about half a century. He made a law code, which many thought was what Moses then copied, or at least the idea copied, but of course that is absolutely false. But at the time he ruled in Amorite Babylon is about the time the Isra Israelites ended up going down into Egypt and ultimately into uh, captivity, roughly about that same time. Assyria was located up in the north up here, the northern part of Mesopotamia, up in what is Kurdistan today, at least in part. And the, the major cities were like Asher and Kalna and, of course, later on Nineveh. And we know a lot about Nineveh. If you've studied the Old Testament and you've read some of the prophets, they wail about Nineveh. Nineveh was the, the capital city of, the, of a later Assyrian Empire. There were two Assyrian empires, the one that ran from about the 14th century to about the 12th century, and then the one that Bible talks primarily about, the, the one that existed in the, in the 8th and 7th centuries before Christ. But anyway, they were a different people. They were Semitic, okay? They were not of the same people group as the original uh, Sumerians had been, as, of course, the later early Babylonians were not either. So this empire, for a while, uh, Mitanni is sort of sandwiched in between. I don't have it on the list here because there's very little we know about Mitanni. It, we just know it was a kingdom that was sandwiched between Syria, uh, Assyria, and the land that later, later became the Hittite uh, empire. But what's important about it is they've discovered some interesting collections of cuneiform writing from there that gives some background for the Old Testament period. So the Neo-Assyrian state is the one that we're primarily concerned with, will be later on, because the Neo-Assyrian state, which is capitalized, was capital, its capital was Nineveh, is the one that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 and carried off the ten tribes into captivity, supposed ten lost tribes of Israel, uh, occurred at that time during the Neo-Assyrian uh, Empire. The Assyrians were destroyed by the, by the Babylonians primarily, a new Babylonian dynasty, not related to the first one, not the Amorite, a later one. This is the Chaldean version of uh, the Babylonian Empire. This is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Uh, they too were Semitic uh, peoples, and they were, their capital was here, and uh, they established an empire that ruled virtually this whole mess here as did the Neo-Assyrians. The Neo-Assyrians at first ruled all the way from here, 
over to here. The later Babylonians ruled from here to here as well under Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is the one who carried away um, many of the Jews from Judea into captivity. And you have Daniel and you have Ezekiel and you have Jeremiah, prophets at that particular time period. And then you have the Persians who came along and they're the ones who allowed the Jews to be freed from the Babylonian captivity and to come back and build a new temple after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to talk about all of this in more detail. I'm just giving you a, a quick rundown through the list here for a few minutes. The Persian Empire eventually covers uh, almost everything you see on this map from, from the Aegean Sea all the way over to India and all the way up to the southern steppes of Russia and all the way down to include this and to include Egypt. So virtually everything north of this, of a line like this, was ruled by the Persians uh, up in here. Persians were an Indo-European people who came down out of, uh, originally came down out of uh, Central Asia. Uh, the country today is known as Iran. Iran comes from the name Aryan. Aryan is the actual name of the, these Indo-European people, some of which invaded India and formed the new state uh, in India, and the ancestors of most of the modern Indians. So Indians, Iranians, Afghani, they're all related to each other. The Persian Empire was eventually destroyed by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came in here and, and shattered this, this whole area here and established a Greek, a Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire that we are concerned about, or will be concerned about, broke into two pieces known as the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Ptolemies. The Seleucids were capital, had their capital up here at uh, Antioch in uh, Syria, and the Ptolemies were headquartered down in Egypt. Okay, they were two Greek empires that existed here, and they're going to be very important to Israel because they will, the, this area will be caught in between the vice of the northern Greek empire and the southern Greek empire, and Daniel talks about rather enigmatically talks about the struggle between these two empires and the ultimate result that comes out of that. The Parthian Empire is centered over here in, and we're talking about Mesopotamia right now. The Parthians were centered over here in what is today Iran and Turkmenistan, part of what used to be southern Russia up over there. And they established an area and they ruled this for a while. And then they were later replaced by a native Persian empire called the Sassanids, the Sassanian Empire, which also ruled part of Mesopotamia for a period of time. This is long after the time of Christ. You see the terms Umayyad and Abbasid. These are Muslim. These are Muslim groups. After Muhammad had established himself down here, there was a conquest of much of this world very quickly by the Muslims. The first ruling dynasty was called the Umayyads. And they were headquartered, this is probably not the best map to use for that. The Umayyads were, were headquartered here at Damascus. And, and they ruled basically uh, most of everything that's in blue and purple on this map. They were overthrown after about a century by the Abbasids, that's a new dynasty, who built Baghdad. Baghdad was built, as you see there, in 762 as uh, capital of the new Arabic Muslim Abbasid dynasty, and they ruled everything in color on this map other than gray. This vast empire, which lasted for clear, nearly 500 years, with some damage to parts of it. The Turks then came down out of this area up in here called the Seljuks. They plunged through here. They captured Baghdad. They were called the Seljuks. 
And uh, they ruled this area uh, all through here for a while, even into Asia Minor and uh, conquering part of what had been the Roman Empire, later on the Byzantine Empire. And then the Mongols, I gave you a list there, Mongols, that then Tamerlane, who was kind of a wild man who came up out of the north up here, and later version of the Persians ruled this particular area. That's what we're dealing with, Mesopotamia, right there. And then came the Ottoman Turks, who established an empire which would, would cover almost all of, eventually would cover most all of this region right in here. The Ottoman Empire, which would be have its capital at Constantinople, which is today called Istanbul. The Ottoman Empire would control this region until the British invaded in World War I. The British would conquer Iraq in, in World War I, take it away from the Turks, and uh, there would be a British mandate. Then the Kingdom of Iraq would be born in 1922, and then the Republic of Iraq in 1958, and of course, the rest of it is history, right? Uh, we, we know, and, and then of course, uh, according to uh, Bill, probably according to others too, the American conquest uh, <laughs> of, of Iraq. Egypt down here went through a series called the early dynastic period when it was being formed. The first pharaoh was established, for example, then the old kingdom. We know the old kingdom because if you ever go to, to, to Cairo and you look out on the horizon, you see those big pyramids, that's when they were built. It was in the old kingdom about 4,500 years ago. Uh, those large, three, the three great pyramids at Giza. Then there was an interregnum called the Nomarchy. The Middle Kingdom was the kingdom we'll be concerned about because that is the kingdom that existed when Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. The Hyksos era is when they went into Egypt. And the New Kingdom was the Great Kingdom of Egypt. When the Egyptians had their largest territory was during the New Kingdom all the way from the fourth cataract of the Nile clear up to the border of the Hittite Empire, the Egyptians had this long, skinny, kind of string bean-like empire. And obviously Canaan was under their rule at that particular time, as we'll, be, as we'll be noting. That will collapse and pharaohs will arise down here in a place called Nubia, which is in Sudan today, and then later in Libya and, and ru will rule Egypt for a period of time. Sate, that's just a local Egyptian dynasty. Then the Persians will conquer Egypt at, at that particular time, and then it'll be part of Alexander's. Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. He was, he was called Pharaoh. Uh, he was called a god, too. He kind of merged the Greek gods and the, and the Egyptian gods all together as one. He, he became Amun Re Zeus, you know, combination. He thought of himself as a divine person. Then the Romans would conquer, well, Looks like it's died. There, there it goes. Romans would, <laughs> Romans would conquer Egypt. Uh, you, you remember all those wonderful names, Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra. This is where they come in. And uh, then when the Roman Empire breaks up into an eastern and western half, that's when the eastern half becomes known as the Byzantine Empire. And Judah... Jerusalem, Israel will be part of the Byzantine Empire, a Greek-dominated empire from the capital city of Constantinople up here. That empire will then be overrun by the uh, Muslims. You have the Umayyads and the Abbasids again. Then you have the Fatimids, which was a Shiite group. Most of these Muslims were um, Sunni, 
which is the main branch of Islam today, but a smaller group called the Shiites actually invaded, established the Fatimid dynasty, which is named after Muhammad's daughter, because the Shiites believe in a blood connection back to Muhammad for their leadership. And uh, so the Fatimid dynasty will rule for a period of time, and then Saladin will conquer the area after he defeats the Crusaders, and then you have the Ayyubid dynasty for a short period of time, then the Mamluks who were sort of like slave conquerors, slave uh, mercenaries who were brought in to help fight who then take over the country. And they're called the Mamluks and they rule Egypt for a while, then the, then the Turks come in, rule Egypt the Ottoman period of time, and, and then you have the British, <laughs> the ever-present British, uh, come in and establish a protectorate there, and then they allow a monarchy to be established, and today, of course, Egypt is a republic as well, as Iraq. Um, I include Asia Minor here because Asia Minor does play a role in Hebrew history. The Hittite Empire existed for 600 years, from about 1800 to 1200. They're important because they're the first to introduce iron weapons and iron tools to this part of the world. They were eventually overwhelmed by a, a group of people who came from up in the north, up in here, called the Frisians, came out of the steppes of Russia. Then there was the Lydian Empire, which right in here ruled this part for a while, and the Greeks loved the Lydians because the Lydians, the Greeks say, were the first to invent, I can't, I, I have one, I know, the coin. The Lydians were the first to invent the concept of a coin, a round piece of metal with embossed on both sides, which was a, a form, you know, the fir very first time money was actually in existence. So whenever you read scripture and it talks about giving so many shekels of this and shekels of that, it's not modern shekels, okay? Those are just weights of gold, silver, bronze, whatever it is. Uh, the coin is not invented till the seventh century before Christ. So, the, so if you ever find a coin that says, minted in the 10th century BC, there are several problems with that, of course, <laughs> to say the least. Then the Persians came, and then the uh, Greeks came, but the Greeks didn't really have total control of this area, and there were other independent kingdoms, like Pergamum, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontus, Bithynia, and so forth, were independent kingdoms that existed along with the Seleucid Empire. Then the Romans came, then the Byzantines came. This, of course, was part of the heartland of the Byzantine uh, Empire. Then came the Seljuks, then came the Mongols, who just destroyed everything. And then the Ottomans, and of course today you have the Republic of Turkey, which is sort of friendly to the United States. Now more specifically, of course, to us is our uh, desire to understand Palestine, Canaan, Israel. And history of this area is usually grouped in the early history is usually referred to as early bronze, middle bronze, or late bronze. And those are the ages that are usually described in talking about the history of early Israel. So from 3000 BC down to about a little past 2000 BC, you have what's called the Early Bronze Age. The difference between early, middle, and late bronze is simply the quality of the bronze and the quality of the workmanship of the bronze and the prolific use of the materials as opposed to Stone Age equipment. And the Middle Bronze Age, both of these are times when this whole land is ruled by petty Canaanite kingdoms. Land was made up of city-states, that's why when you read about the conquest, there's this king, that king, the other king, all these kings. Thirty-one kings were given a list of in Joshua. Thirty-one kings. Thirty-one kings in an area that you could stick into California ten times. You know, think, well, those are pretty small kingdoms. Yeah, right, they were just city-states. 
they weren't real kingdoms in the sense that we think of them. Then, of course, it was part of the Egyptian New Kingdom. Then the Israelites came in, and I there have given you the early chronology, what is believed to be the earliest date that the Israelites could have invaded the land, around 1400. Others believe it occurred 100 or more years uh, later, which would simply shorten the period of the Shofatim. In other words, you see the era of the Shofatim, I've given it there as about 300 years, but if the conquest actually occurred a little bit later, it could be 200 years, the length of the era of the Shofatim. Now, as we studied through 1st and 2nd Samuel, we looked at the development of the United Monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. And so this whole land here was under the control of an Israelite kingdom. First Saul, then of course David built the big empire, and then Solomon followed up by consolidating that empire more or less. And then upon his death, it divided. His son took the southern part down here, Judea, and Jeroboam, a rival, took the whole northern part. Ten of the tribes of Israel followed after Jeroboam. So this became called the divided kingdom. You had a northern kingdom up here called Ephraim or Israel. You had a southern kingdom called Judah or Judea. And the lengths of time of those who two are different. Both started around 930 when Solomon died. But uh, this, the northern kingdom ends with the coming of the Assyrians and the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 by an emperor called Sargon II and the carrying off of the leadership of this area into captivity. The southern kingdom lasted all the way down until 586. The first conquest by Nebuchadnezzar was in 606. But he allowed a king to continue to rule, sort of as a governor in Judea, until 586 when he destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the Temple of Solomon, ruined everything, and carried uh, more off into captivity over in Babylonia, right? All right, then you have the coming of the Persians. They allowed the Israelites to come back. It was part of the Persian Empire. Uh, the Persian Empire was overthrown by Alexander the Great. And at first, Egypt, the Egyptian form of, of the Greek, the Ptolemaic Kingdom, uh, ruled Judea at first. And then later, the Seleucids from the north, Alexander's descendants. You, we're going to get more detail about that later, so if it's all a haze, don't worry about it. And then during this, uh, the two will fight each other, the Greeks from Egypt and the Greeks from Syria. The Greeks from Syria will win and, and uh, will rule Israel for a period of time. Then there will be a native dynasty which will sort of overthrow them, at least kick them out, and called the Hasmoneans. And for, so you have not quite a century of local Jewish rule under a dynasty called the Hasmoneans. And then Roman Empire comes. When the Romans come, everybody else is dominated. And then the Roman Empire continues to rule the area until it divides around 395 and then it becomes part of the Byzantine Empire. Then the Umayyads, the Abbasids. And the only little difference here is that from 1099 to 1291 there was an interim period here in which much of this was ruled by the Crusaders. This is the era of the Crusaders, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And uh, Crusaders dominated this, this area for uh, not quite 200 years. Not, not consistently, but at least largely. And then after that, the Mamluks destroyed the Crusaders. So the Mamluks out of Egypt ruled uh, the Holy Land for the period that you see there. Then came the Ottomans, then the British Mandate. The British conquered Jerusalem in 1917. The British marched in under General uh, Edmund Allenby and, and conquered uh, Jerusalem in 1917 in December. And then, of course, the British gave up their mandate in 1947, and Israel proclaimed itself a republic in 1948. 
What yes. role did Babylon, the Tower of Babel, pardon me, have in the spreading of the languages and the people in all this? That's a uh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it obviously happened way before all this, but I'm just curious. Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat, which is one of the great kind of like temple pyramids that the, that the Sumerians and the Babylonians built. And uh, we assume, of course, it must have been at Babylon. Babel can mean the gate of God, or it can mean confusion. And most of us think that probably confusion is the origin of the name. That is, from the Christian perspective, we think of that. And, and so that would have occurred, of course, probably before the time of the Sumerians, and, or at least in the early f period of the Sumerians. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to actually put that into the known historical record outside of the Bible. Before Noah or after Noah? It's after Noah. It's after Noah had landed on the mountains of Ararat, which are up way up here in uh, eastern Turkey. And his sons and families came down. They, uh, apparently they migrated out like this. Shem, Ham, and Japheth and all their descendants migrated kind of fan-like out like this. And the Japhethites are supposed to be ultimately the Europeans. The Hamites are supposed to be the, the Africans and the East Asians. And the Semites, of course, the, the people who occupied this area in here. That's the th traditional theory. And uh, so the confusion of the languages occurred somewhere between the flood and the founding of Sumer, probably. So that would be five, 6,000 BC, somewhere in there, maybe. I have a question regarding in, you know, chapter five of Daniel about Belshazzar of, of, the, of the Persians overthrown by the Medes. And I, you know, we always understand that it's a Median version, but is, are the, were the Median Medes part of the Persian Empire, I presume they were? Yeah. I didn't get a chance to meet of the Medes, but the Bible calls them the Medes and the Persians and puts the two horns on the uh, ram, one Media, one Persia. And they then combined conquered Babylon and Babylonia. There's still a bit of debate as to the, some of the sequence in there because there's a Darius mentioned and of course we know Cyrus was the great conqueror of the of Babylonia uh, under the uh, Persians, so they believe that Darius mentioned in Daniel was probably his father-in-law. He put him in charge in Babylon while he went on further conquests. And so he had married a Mede, apparently, because Darius was a Mede and Cyrus was a Persian, so he married probably to join the two together. And so anyway, that led to the Medo-Persian or Persian conquest of, of Babylon. Anybody else? What was going on in China during this time? <laughs> <laughs> Which time? Well, the, you know, the beginning of the Sumerian and all that stuff. I mean, were, was, there, was there even an existence of Chinese people at the time? Yeah, the Chinese were going through what we would call the Neolithic period at that particular time. The Chinese became, the Chinese became Bronze Age around the beginning of the Shang Dynasty, which was about 1600 BC. But the earliest Chinese civilization is traced back to about 2200. That's when you're talking about advanced civilization, uh, building of cities, making a pottery, and those kinds of things. You can trace them back to pre-Abraham. But their, 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 their civilization will flower uh, during the time of uh, while Israel's in Egypt. So while Israel is in Egypt, the Chinese civilization is flowering. Wow. They've invented writing, the, hier the uh, character form of writing by that time. Yeah. 
Well, we can't leave out a little Bible here. <laughs> this is a Bible class. But I, I just, I wanted this to, you to have this as a background so that as we talk about these events, you'll see how they fit in with the broader perspective. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about other parts of the world, we can, but you know, what's going on in America <laughs> and so forth, but it doesn't relate, of course, to, uh, I mean, God knows. That, that's the thing about it that really, when you're talking about history, was God with Abraham but not in China? Not in Japan? Not in America? And of course God was in America. How, what was he doing? We, do, we don't know. Oh, I, I, I am firmly convinced that if you read the first chapter of Romans, you get a pretty good idea of how God can actually reach people, even though they may not have the direct word of prophecy that come down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest of them. Somehow God can reveal himself. At least we know there is kind of a pre-missionary preparation, which has occurred many times. Read Don Richardson's Peace Child, Lords of the Earth, and several other books that he wrote that helps us to understand how some societies were just, they already believed in God, they didn't know what to call him. So it was mass conversion that occurred. You guys are going to a much tougher area <laughs> where they, uh, they believe in Jesus all right, but they have a totally different view of who he is, so more difficult in many ways. But we were talking about Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and uh, Isaac was born, before Isaac was born, whose name meant what? Laughter. Before, Abraham, uh, before Isaac was born, Abraham was living down here in the Negev, which usually is used in Scripture to mean the south. The actual Hebrew word, Negev, is believed to mean dry country. It's kind of a stepland. It's great for herdsmen down in here because it's mostly grassland, rel relatively flat. Not totally so. It's got some ruggedness to it. But Anyway, this is where Isaac was born, and this is where Isaac will spend almost all of his life between Beersheba here and Kadesh Barnea, which is just, just down off the map here. In this area, this is where Isaac will spend most of his life. Abraham, of course, will send a servant all the way up to Paden Aram, which is in modern-day Syria, near Haran, at Haran, actually, uh, to get a wife. He didn't want Isaac to marry one of the pagan Canaanites. So he sent his servant to go all the way up to Paden Aram to get a cousin and bring her down to marry his son. Did that cousin know the Lord? Well, Abraham came from that family. To what extent did that family know the Lord? Was it just Abraham who heard the voice of the Lord? Or did Terah at all know about the Lord? Did Abraham's brothers know about the Lord? Well, we can only assume one way or, or another. We believe Re Rebecca, if she didn't, quickly did believe in the God of uh, Abraham. She was brought down and she married Isaac. Isaac's two main contributions to the history of Israel. You notice the least is said about Isaac of the three. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A lot about Abraham, a lot about Jacob, very little about Isaac. So his two main contributions were to marry Rebekah and then to father two sons, Esau and Jacob. And from those two sons, of course, will come both a blessing and a curse. Because Esau is, quote, the elder son. They were twins. And he was supposedly born first. Esau was, was the older son, but as we all know, and we've heard so many sermons on the fact that he sold his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. Because he despised his birthright. No big deal. What's his birthright? Who cares? I can handle it on my own. I'm a rough man, you know. I can go out and kill game and whatever. I don't need any birthright. 
And of course, Jacob, for his part, rather than just saying thank you very much, Esau, for the birthright, he, of course, tricked his brother into giving him uh, or selling him uh, the birthright. And so you have two boys, these twins, neither one of which is exactly a paragon of virtue. And Esau, of course, will simply abandon the whole thing, and Jacob will flee too. Jacob will flee to the north. But before all this happens, there's a very, very important event that, of course, you've heard many sermons on, having to do with Isaac when he was a youth. He was sort of the uh, passive person in this. I suppose you could say it's a third major event in Isaac's life, but he was the passive person in this. The major player was Abraham. And that's when God said to Abraham, go up to the high country. The word is Moriah, to the high country. And there I want you to sacrifice your son. And what is interesting about this, let, let me read that from 22nd chapter of Genesis here. Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. Now it came after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, Isaac and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there. And we will worship and return to you. You know, he didn't change it from we to, and then I will return to you. He left it that way. Abraham took the wood uh, for the burnt offering and laid it on his, Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And of course, you see all kinds of messianic promise in, in that passage. Uh, Abraham gives us one of the most incredible examples of faith recorded in history. Now remember, he lives 4,000 years ago. And there was no scripture. You and I have the whole book. He had none of the book. And yet he gives us an exhibition of faith unparalleled in the history of Christianity or of the Bible, for that matter. You notice God spoke to him directly so he couldn't say, well, you know, I don't think God really meant that or God didn't really say that because God said, Abraham, yes, take Isaac, yeah, you're the son you love, yeah, I know him, and go sacrifice him on the mountain. Now, it was pretty clear. You know, he knew exactly what, Abra what God had asked him to do. And what is interesting and what is so unbelievable about this is you read through this passage, of scripture is it appears that Abraham is nonchalant about the whole thing. He's just like, okay, God, I'll go do that. I'm going to go up there. I've got some guys here. I've got a donkey. Take the wood and the fire. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. This is no big deal, you know. Do this every other day. As, you know, to, to, to accept God's command without a question is sit out is perform his duty. But put yourself in Abraham's shoes, sandals. Is, is that what it really was? Abraham was human. His mind was a whir with this whole thing. I'm sure he was asking his questions, uh, self questions. I really hear God. I mean, why did God say that? Well, you know, all kinds of things were going through his mind. And I think he was incredulous and he was perplexed. 
God had promised that he would be the father of a great nation and that that nation would be fathered through his union with Sarah. That union had produced the promised son. Here he was, Isaac, laughter. It's 15 years later. Sarah's now 105. And he is now being told to sacrifice the only hope, the fulfillment of the promise, go slay him on the top of Mount Moriah. That made no sense whatsoever. God's word many times makes no sense to us. But it's not because God is wrong. It's because we are not up to speed with God. But you know, Abraham obeyed to the point of actually raising the knife, remember? How far is that? Just momentary downstroke or whatever he was going to do, you know, momentary. Just seconds. Talk about faith. But fortunately, you and I have been blessed by divine inspiration of the writer of the Hebrews. And he helps us to understand how it is that Abraham could do this. So let me, I know I'm going to have to wind it up here. I spent too much time on our outline. But maybe that will be a good background for us. Um, in Hebrews 11, verse 17, this famous 11th chapter of Hebrews, of course. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Notice it says, offered up Isaac. It doesn't say was intending to. It says he did it because in his mind and in his heart, he had given up Isaac to God. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type of Christ, of Messiah, of course. And so, imagine Abraham going up the mountain and his mind is thinking, had he ever seen God raise anybody from the dead? There's no record that he ever had. Who put that kind of faith in his heart? Well, God. Believe God that if God says sacrifice him, sacrifice him, and God will give him back to you because he's the son of promise. And through him will come the Messiah. You know, all those details were probably not explained to Abraham. But we see it and we understand it. And the substitution of the death of a ram for the death of Isaac, of course, symbolized the substitutionary death of Messiah, which would later occur where? Well, this is where David was living on the Ophel here. This is the old city of David down here. He had gone up here to this place to um, sacrifice. We read that in 2 Samuel. And he eventually bought this piece of land up here. And that spot right there, where you see that little black spot, is thought to be the actual spot where Abraham was ready to slay Isaac. This is what is believed to be the actual spot. Well, Jesus Christ will be slain not very far away. Let me just overlay Jerusalem from the day of Jesus. Here's your spot where Isaac was to be slain. And here, just a few hundred yards to the west, is the believed spot where Christ was sacrificed. It is believed to be Golgotha under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
that's the majority opinion anyway. There are others for, the, for a northern place, but, but whatever. This is believed to be the spot. So we're talking about it just a short distance away, 2,000 years later nearly, but close to be the place where Christ would be slain as the substitutionary lamb for us. Well, there's a whole lot more that could be said, and we'll do that in August.